a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 67 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. Knock it off. And with me like an Imperial agent on the hunt, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey guys, so that was the one that was that was decided upon. I all I saw that was on Facebook. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Apparently I have a new title. Yeah, and it was unanimous. I mean, I, I was just tinkering around. I was like, you know, if I'm gonna be the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Nathan's gotta be something more than just the EU guru. And then I was sitting there and I, I originally A was the one that I had coined, and I was like, well, I'll just kick it out there. And everybody come back, no, nah, no, nah, we're doing count of, of continuity. I'm like all right, and I gotta find a way to kind of like make a little uh, song version with uh, cult of personality. <laughs> cool. I, I keep thinking of the uh, the count from Sesame Street. One type of cannon, two type of cannon, three type <laughs> of cannon. Oh, 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 or something like that. D level. Oh, oh, oh. A Disney canon, as opposed to uh, to the canon that we've known for so long. But that's a whole other thing. I guess we should start just kind of a. If there's anything to get into, let me hit a few quick things. Uh, uh, one, expect some uh, upcoming contests again in the near future. We will actually probably uh, slide one into the end of this episode, so keep an ear out for that, especially if you're into Star Wars Transformers. Um, two, uh, got into Defiance finally. If you're wanting to play, I wasn't able to give you any details recently, but if you're planning on playing and you want to play with me on the PS3, it is uh, Darth underscore Soul, S-O-U-L, uh, character name of Cray Ellis, the character name from uh, Greater Good, the main character there. And uh, then we get the big news, and that is, of course, this is the week that uh, we learned that, or last week, by the time you guys hear this, that uh, LucasArts had been shut down. It is now essentially just a licensing arm, not doing any kind of internal development First Assault is dead, 1313 is dead, unless either of those get picked up by some other type uh, of developer out there, kind of like the way they licensed out uh, Star Wars stuff to Bioware to do the old Republic and whatnot. Wasn't Pet supposed to be the main character yes. of 1313? Yeah, apparently right near the end of development, at least of the development that actually happened, they had switched over and finally decided, yes, we are focusing on Boba Fett, which to me actually makes it less of a desirable game. Because I really don't give a crap about playing a Boba Fett game. I didn't care about playing the Django Fett game, but at least that one had some significant ties, you know, into leading up to Episode 2 and whatnot. So yeah, I, I, I kind of feel better about it being possibly canceled now that we knew it was about Boba Fett. But yeah, it was a big week for for craziness as far as that goes. It seems as though everywhere we turn... Things are being shut down, with one of the few things that's still going, at the moment at least, being the comics and being the 
the novels. But of course, the comics are now going into even more uncharted territory, doing the 1974 story treatment of the Star Wars, as opposed to just Star Wars, uh, which you can find a summary of, by the way, of that and all the other early drafts on the Star Wars timeline gold. Uh, they're going to be doing that as a special sort of Infinities, what might have been type comic series, which I think's kind of cool in and of itself. But it is a strange, yeah. a strange time. It, it's definitely, I mean, it seems like Dark Horse is the only ones really having anything going. I mean, you know, you mentioned that the Star Wars, which to me, I, I, to me, that's like, yeah, here we go. More Infinities that pushes us closer to a multiverse. You know, yeah, you know, you know what they say, self-contained story. I call that a universe unto itself. You know, I mean, it's one of those things. But it, it's interesting that they they gave us the new title of the next Dark Times, and the way that they treat it, they treat it like it's a new series. And this this bothered me. It's a pet peeve. It's not a new series, folks. It's a new story arc. Well, it's, it's not. I don't think it's so much that, that Dark Horse is treating it like a news series, but Newsarama and all these other websites that are reporting on it, yeah. uh, A Spark Remains, are treating it like it's a news series because, well, see, it starts with issue number one. Yeah, that's that whole, let's, let's make it accessible by making it so stupid that people are having a hard time understanding. You go out and you buy Dark Times, you buy the wrong one because you're not paying attention to what date it is, all because you saw new series and it's Dark Times. Keep in mind, folks, and I didn't even realize this, Dark Times is simply Star Wars Republic continued. We're at 108 or 107 or something like that. But they didn't bother to mention that. If you pay attention when you open your inside cover, though, it is there. Which is kind of cool because that means that we had Star Wars, I guess you could say it was Volume 1 from Dark Horse, which is actually the second series just named Star Wars because Marvel had one first. Now we've got a second series Volume 2, which is actually the third, and that Star Wars became Republic, which became, apparently, Dark Times, which restarted the numbering and then restarted it again for individual story arcs. I mean, if there's if there's any chance of a new fan being able to come in and actually jump into this stuff without needing some type of guide like the Timeline Gold, like Wikipedia, um, like even the, the, the brief timeline thing that is up on the Dark Horse website... Um, I think that is diminishing at this point. It's which again is unfortunately an argument for the idea of a reboot of saying, you know, let's have the new Star Wars films plus maybe the Clone Wars plus the old Star Wars films, but none of the books, none of the comics, blah blah blah, um, becoming their own continuity. I mean, either way, you can pretty much bet that a lot of the stuff after Return of the Jedi is about to be dashed by Episode Seven. But you got to kind of sit back yeah. and wonder. If this is a, if it's going to be a directed thing, are they going to purposely say this is the direction we are going and adhere to that kind of like the previous direction of trying to make everything fit? Or is it just going to be haphazard? Oh, these movies just knocked this out. So now it's all the other stuff minus the stuff that just got kicked out and it just kind of becomes a mess. Is there a game plan involved? And I hope so because the mess. That's what we're doing. That's been the, the Lucas model of, oh, boy, just continue to, oh, let Leland fix it later. Leland's good at his job. I mean, you know, knock on some wood here, but what if Leland got in a car wreck tomorrow and we have no Leland? I mean, you know, Nathan, they're going to be knocking on your door. There are very few people that have that kind of information available to them, and it is not the EU that made itself this convoluted. It's the powers behind it. And, you know, if you want to do a reboot, that's all fine and good, but let's just call it a multiverse so we can have both. <sighs> but that's getting off topic. Speaking of the topic, though, 
Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we cover Star Wars Agent of the Empire, Hard Targets, scripted by the one and only John Ostrander. Now consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and fans of all ages, because here we go. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, aside from, you know, sharing or almost sharing a title with an old Jean-Claude Van Damme Muscles from Brussels movie here, um, it's an unusual tale. Um, it gave us some interesting things that sort of enhance the story of Jahan Cross and everything. But, I don't know, the feel of this story is a lot different to me than the first story arc in this series. The first story arc was really kind of exciting, and granted it had sort of a dweeby villain at the end, you know, their own Iron Man named Stark, uh, with Stark from the Stark Hyperspace War coming back as this weird insectoid cyborg thing. Um, but beyond that, the first story arc really had the feel of the, the, the pre-Daniel Craig James Bond stuff. You know, it had the gadgets, it had sort of its own versions of Q, uh, one being technology, the other being the droids with Inga and whatnot. Um, it really kind of felt like uh, my favorite era of the Bond films, which is the Pierce Brosnan stuff, really. I know there's probably some out there who are gasping now, but that's the Bond that I like the most, the Bond I first got into. This arc feels much more like the Daniel Craig James Bond stuff, um, in that it's much less reliant on gadgets, much less reliant on odd technology and whatnot. He doesn't have Ingo with him this time as a sidekick. There's still a new one in the process of being developed, and it's much less about him uh, seducing the femme fatale and winding up working with her to bring down some megalomaniacal villain um, who has some kind of a super weapon or gadget he's trying to use. Instead, it's much more of backstabbing, political maneuvering, whose angle is uh, is the best one to follow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, basically to bring down someone who is essentially just a manipulator in a lot of ways. It really felt much more like Quantum of Solace or Casino Royale, and to a degree, some parts of Skyfall, uh, the Daniel Craig, James Bond stuff, more so than the previous one. And to me, that's... It's, it's good yet bad. It's more complex, because there's more angles to the story this time around. On the other hand, aside from the awesome foot chase in Casino Royale, I really haven't liked the Daniel Craig James Bond stuff very much. Because to me, it doesn't feel like classic film Bond. It feels actually more like the novels of James Bond, some of which I own. Um, it feels much more like um, a drawn-out, you know, twist-and-turn very straightforward type of chase, which sounds weird to say it's straightforward and yet it has the twists and turns. It's just, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to kick butt, I'm going to get my job done, the end. As opposed to look at the cool gadgets, look at the cool twists and turns, look at this uh, this new technology that's going to destroy everything if I don't stop it type of stuff. It is a more personal story. I do not think it is a better story. If this is the direction that, that Agent of the Empire is going to take in the future, for characterization, great, go for it. From storytelling style and feel, I really hope they don't continue in this direction or they may have another Dark Times on their hands. Uh, the first story arc was infinitely superior to this one. I, 
I think for me, I, it, it was a lot more verbiage going on. I mean, you know, looking back over it, I was like, man, did I, did I flip through this and not pay attention to half of what was being said? Uh, you know, in, in that regards, there feels like there is a lot of story here. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm in the comics, I always kind of I always look at the images first. That's the first thing I do is I flip through, check them out. You know, I'm not really reading them. I'm not giving them 100 percent paying attention. I'm just kind of looking at it just to see what the art looks like and that kind of gauging it like that, if you will. Um, you know, we mentioned this in the past uh, with issue one here. You know, we get some really cool little touches on, you know, as as uh, as. Johan, Johan, however we're going to say him, uh, he goes up and he has the whole seeing uh, Princess Leia and he introduces himself to Leia, uh, but it turns out it's actually winter. And they do that whole, and your lovely friend running gag there. You know, a couple of those little touches, which I've always liked, uh, and the whole Count Dooku of Sereno aspect uh, and how that tied into things, how we have another Count Dooku, how that tied into the Separatists, uh, how he is friends with Bale. You know, there is a lot of that building up of things in this regard. Um, I did like, though, uh, Chandra Taimon, the head of Count Dooku's security. And I like, you know, of course, uh, uh, Jahan, he goes, a female head of security, unusual. You must be very good at your job. It's like, why Why must she be good? Because she's a girl. You, you imperial pig, you. I, You know, and I love that. But there, there's a moment later where after we see the Count get assassinated, where she's running, and they, and I, I remember I shared this a long time ago back uh, when I first had the issue. She's running in high heel boots, jumping from building to building, and I was like, "Wow, this chick is, I mean, hardcore." You know, uh, I, I again, it gets back to I like the art style. Uh, we we see that the person shooting the count is Boba Fett, but when you really pay attention to it, it's like, well, is it Boba Fett? Because it looks like Fett. The backpack's a little bit different. And the armor, while being very reminiscent to everything Fett has, it's blue like Django's. It's not the normal green that we're used to seeing. And then we discover at the end that it is none other than Cross himself. A double cross, if you will. Yeah, the first issue does have a lot of unusual things going for it. That was the one that really kind of gave me hope for this particular story arc. Uh, as you said, we get the idea that Dooku is actually a title. It's, it's a family last name, but it's also a title. You would be Count Dooku, Count of that family. You would be uh, one of the major houses on Sereno, which of course begs the question of, okay, Dooku with the beard that you could, you know, stab someone with if you use the Clone Wars incarnation of him. Darth uh, Tyrannus. Right, Darth Tyrannus. Uh, what was his first name? Because it turns out that it's not just Dooku. Dooku was apparently his last name, unless he pulled a Palpatine and just decided to go with just the family name as his name. So we get that angle. We meet Aidan Dooku and his, his son, Bron Dooku. You get the cool moment, of course, where Cross does meet with Leia and Winter, which was neat. We get to hear uh, Bail Organa making the pitch to Aidan Dooku about, you know, the need for rebellion, the need to stand up against the Empire, which I thought was cool. I thought in this era... That makes a whole lot of sense. This is right around the time where things are finally starting to come together for the Rebel Alliance with the Corellian Treaty about to happen and all that kind of stuff. And we do get that interesting chase um, with Kondra going after supposedly Boba Fett uh, with Boba himself turning out not to be Boba. Uh, they have an interesting technology introduced, this Boba Fett outfit that Cross was wearing. 
is actually dissolvable in water somehow, um, which is a little bit weird. Thank goodness uh, he didn't have to ever wash it or anything. Um, because when he flies into a little pond, it literally starts to hiss and melt away, which is a good way, I guess, of destroying the armor. Perhaps that is an example of a technology that doesn't seem like it's there as much in this. Uh, and we do get to see at the end, I guess the end in the beginning kind of made me sit up and take notice. At the end, we get to see Isan Iceheart, or Iceheart, showing up to go talk to Daddy, and she's putting some doubts into Cross's mind as to whether or not Dooku needed to die. Was he really a threat to the Empire, or did someone higher up just want him dead? Um, what gets me about this issue, though, that I think is going to confuse a lot of people, if you don't read these all in one shot, if you're reading these bit by bit, and the first issue came out on my birthday, October 17th of last year, so it's been five months from the first issue to the last issue, and the first, what is it, three pages of issue number one are actually events that take place in the middle of issue number five. We yeah, see ten uh, days later. Right, because Cross is, is fighting with Boba Fett, and Boba takes off telling him, you know, you get in my way again and you're dead. Cross says, unfortunately, Fett, getting in your way is my mission, and then as Fett speeds off on a swoop, uh, Cross steals a speeder and chases after him. And then basically the entire rest of the series up into the last little chunk is a flashback. It's very uh, uh, yeah. Fight Club-style storytelling. So it had a lot going for it in that first issue. It left me kind of going, what the hell is going on? Not quite sure what's going on with the fake Fett and how much does that tie into uh, the real Fett fighting Cross and all that stuff at the beginning. Um, but it just doesn't feel as though... I mean, it had all these great elements to it. It just didn't feel like it came together as well as the first arc did. Well, and I think this is one of those where we fall victim to reading them one at a time. I mean, I totally missed the 10 days. And it, and it is stated as soon as you jump back to Alderaan, you know, 10 days earlier. Like, oh, oh. And I didn't catch that because the next four issues all dealt with that, you know, the 10 days earlier. You know, it's not until you get that last one you realize, oh, we've come full circle. And if you're not rereading them all at once... Which I'm really I'm coming to that conclusion that with the Age of the Empire series, you might be better off just waiting for it in the trades or waiting till the entire series is out and then getting it and reading it. Because I really think you're going to get more out of it. I mean, you know, as I'm looking back over this, I'm like, man, I don't know why I didn't enjoy this more than what am I when I first sat down. I was like, I don't know. I'm not that I'm not that thrilled to be talking about this one. It's not leaping out at me as something really great. But, you know, there were some really cool parts, especially in this first issue, you know, when when. Jahan shows back up in his hotel room, you know, like you said, the dissolvable backpack and stuff. He gets out and he's just like, oh, I've been taking a shower. And they're like, you know, we've had some, we've had uh, possible targets. You know, there may be more than one. And he's like, was anyone hurt? I just love the way he plays it off, you know. It's got, it does have that classic Bond feel. I'm, I've never been a big Bond fan. I mean, yeah, they're fun. But I, I don't know. They, they've never captured my attention. That's the problem I'm having with this. It's like, it seems like, you know, maybe I just need to go back and reread it all now because it does seem like a book. I mean, there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of dialogue going on here. You know, when we do have at the end of issue one where, uh, you know, Iceheart is talking with, with him and she goes, you know, you do, do you even know why you killed Count Dooku? And then she goes, oh, poor dear Johan, you really are too naive sometimes because his answer was it was an assignment. I assume he was the enemy of the state. And then later when he's talking to her dad, he uh, he asks, he goes, was she correct, sir? Was Aiden Dooku an innocent man? You know, and it's one of those where you're like, okay, is he starting to figure out, you know, what's going on? And of course, you know, Izzard goes, it doesn't matter. The assignment was, 
decided at a level far above your pay rate or mine. It was deemed in the best interests of the Empire or interests of someone within the Empire. This strikes me as the sort of corrupt dealings that went on in the Republic, sir. I thought we were above that. And Isser just gives him a dirty look and then steps up close, jabs his finger right in his face. Let me make it very clear, Agent Cross. Do not ever compare the Empire to the Republic in this room. If you are wise, you will not do it even in your sleep. You are given missions. You are not allowed to question those missions. You undertake them. You will complete them successfully. If you cannot do that, I suggest you resign. Are we clear? And then the next scene, they're just staring at each other. And then the next one after that, they're still staring. And he goes, perfectly. And turns and walks out. And, you know, as I'm reading this one at a time, I'm thinking, ooh, ooh, is he going to figure it out? But as we get into the next issue, we discover it's not so simple. Yeah, you can pretty much do whatever you want when you are the Empire. You want to send a drone to kill an American citizen? Wait, no, sorry. Um, that different thing, different thing. Um, uh, this this guy's name is Icehard, not Holder. Um, sorry, sorry. Little political humor there. I'm sure I just ticked off, you know, half <laughs> the people out there. Um, I, I tend to be fairly libertarian, so I tend to agree with the Democrats about half the time, Republicans about half the time, and presidents uh, almost none of the time, uh, no matter which party they're from. Uh, but equal which, opportunity. Huh? Equal, I'm an equal opportunity. They're all, you know, slimy. Um, but no, it's, it's kind of a cool idea. The idea that, um, that, you know, he follows these orders blindly thinking that the empire is in the best interest. We saw that back in the first story arc, right? Where his family gets killed during the, uh, the, the uprising supposedly on Coruscant, uh, or during the battle of Coruscant, a lot of his family gets killed. And as he's trying to find his sister, um, uh, he's underground or, or out of the loop. For so long that by the time he comes back up, there's that, hey, this was all orchestrated by the Jedi. The Jedi just tried to overthrow the Republic, and he's believing that party line. So to him, order means the Empire. So he's following the Empire's orders, but you have this whole issue where, uh, you know, is he at some point going to wind up discovering just how bad the Empire is? His own father says it in issue number two, um, says, uh, well, uh, Jahan says, uh, look in your flimsiplast. You might have seen it there. Imperial diplomatic special envoy here to facilitate the appointment of the new regent. Uh, to which his father says, huh, to make certain that imperial interests are served, you mean. I'll remind you that I was a diplomat for the Republic before it lost its senses and remade itself as an empire. I know perfectly well what special envoys are and what they do. Um, and it kind of strikes me, I mean, I've got sort of a personal tie to this. My, we're not quite sure who it is, Okay. Uh, years ago, I was doing research into my family tree, and my family tree went back from me to my mother to her mother to her parents, so my great-grandparents, and then it just stopped. And it turns out that my great-grandfather's uh, either father or uncle, it's hard to tell who this is, um, because they destroyed the records when they came to the United States uh, to get away from what was going on in Germany in World War II. Um, but whether it's whether it's uncle, father, whatever, um, it's a guy named Wilhelm Keitel. He was the head of the uh, Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, the supreme command of the armed forces, basically a war minister under Adolf Hitler during World War II. He's the guy who signed off on Arbor Operation Barbarossa that invaded the Soviet Union after the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact uh, when Hitler broke it and brought the Soviets into the war and so on. And this is a guy who was executed at 
Nuremberg on October 16th of 40, uh, 46, I guess it was. And it, one of the things that I have my students do, one of the options I give them for a project, I give them all kinds of project options for World War II, and one of them is, here's a list of all this stuff that this apparent relative of mine did that eventually wound up getting him hanged after the war crimes tribunals. And you tell me, based on what it was that he is said to have done, whether or not he is guilty of war crimes. And the biggest part of what you see when you look through his resume, so to speak, is that most of the time he was giving orders that others followed, uh, as opposed to carrying it out himself, or the orders he was passing along came from higher up. And you can make the argument that this is a man who... Uh, he was the one giving the orders, so perhaps the people who just followed orders under him were less guilty than he was. But at the same time, he was an often he was oftentimes following the orders of the Führer at the time, which is kind of ironic because that's what my sister and brother-in-law and nephew's last name is by marriage. Um, uh, <laughs> he was following his orders. So who is it that actually bears the blame? Is it everyone? Is it the ones who actually carried out the orders and didn't refuse? Or is it the ones who gave the orders in the first place? At what point does the buck stop? And I think that's something when it comes to uh, the parallels that they draw oftentimes between the empire and fascist, totalitarian, even communist in some cases regimes, uh, is this whole idea of whose responsibility is it for carrying out atrocities and whose responsibility is it to just say no, even if it may mean court-martial and execution on their own part, and somebody else just going and carrying out those same orders. It's cool that they are, they're just sort of slightly getting into that now with Cross. I would like to see that happen more, and I'm hoping it will throughout the next story arcs. But in this mm. one, it seems like it's just sort of there briefly, and then just kind of stops, barring whenever they say, okay, well, the Empire's coming in to just take over the planet, and, you know, in your case, Cross, you know, you can just stand down. We're, you know... Within a certain amount of hours, there's nothing more you can do. So the last issue winds up having sort of, or the last two issues, I guess, have sort of a ticking clock going on um, to get him to get the job done. It's a great angle to go on with a character like this, but it hasn't really been explored to a depth that I, uh, I would want to see it in yet. Well, continuing that same scene, and you know, there's this this feeling like Cross is going to wake up and realize that he's fighting for the bad guys, but. As the scene plays out, they also give you the aspect of, well, maybe he might be imperial to the core. Because as he turns to his father, he goes, and you yourself never used them when you were a diplomat for the Republic. And his father turns away and goes, I made use of what I had to work with. Such as mother's indiscretions. Perhaps you even arranged some? And the dad, that's a lie. I never helped her with her arrangements. But you made use of them, didn't you? Yes, your mother was as she was, and I loved her, no matter how hard that was at times. And I made use of what I could, when I could, for the sake of the Republic, as I suspect you would do for the Empire. I understand that you were on Alderaan when Count Adon Dooku was killed. Please tell me you had nothing to do with that. And of course, you know, he's standing Rimrod straight, and Jaden says, I had nothing to do with Aiden's death. And they're sitting there looking. And meanwhile, you know, the background, like, you know, this is a total political theater. Their papers flying. People are screaming. You know, they're trying to come up with the who are we going to vote in and all that. And, of course, his dad sits back down and he says, he's all, if you're lying, I can't tell. I can conceive of you doing it without being able to convince myself one way or another. Such is the state of our relationship. And, you know, he continues to tell him that he's invited to go where they're going to be having this vote 
because of the fact that as an Imperial envoy, you're invited to. And, you know, they, they go back on and it's just total, you know, you're a political person. I'm a political person. Beyond that, we have very little to do with each other. And so there's that side of cross where it's like, okay, he's got his own reasons for being in the empire. Plus he's got some personal issues here to kind of have more betterment towards the Republic. And, and, you know, the interesting bits of how that is kind of played out, it's like they feed you a little crumb here at, a, you know, one here, one there. Uh, and then from there, you know, we go to House Borgen, which, of course, you know, we end up learning that, you know, he's probably one of the bigger, badder villains of this comic. But after issue one, you're kind of like, whoa, who's the bad guy? Because Cross just killed Dooku. I mean, that, that was where it got really confusing for me. It was like, okay, who is the bad guy? And I think that's the aspect of the Bond films that I never really cared for. When it gets so confusing, I'm like, uh, 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 I gotta watch or read the book or movie like four or five times to really understand what the hell happened. I mean, yeah, it's cool because it keeps the mystery alive, but when most of your readers don't know what's going on, they're not going to continue to read it. They're going to set it down and go, this is crap. I do like the fact that they get in there and they give us some insight into the relationship with his father. It's one of the things that really is a redeeming quality of this particular story arc because we get to see a little bit more about that. Obviously, the whole family's not killed, um, but they're missing for a while, which helps to set up his belief system. And now here's his father, who he's been somewhat estranged from, who is sort of on the opposite side. He, you might say that his father is a more evolved version of himself. Um, his father has reached the point of seeing what was going on and has separated himself from that. Of course, the whole thing with his mother just adds the level of, you know, no matter how much we might want to emphasize with this character or empathize with the character and believe, well, you know, he finally has seen the light uh, where it'd be nice if his son did. He also, you know, he made use of his wife, uh, essentially, and her indiscretion. So it's like, we need to corrupt this individual. I've got the perfect operative. Send in Agent Ho um, to get the job done, apparently. Uh, they do a good job of the whole fathers and sons thing here, at least within the second issue. We have young Braun believing it's very possible that he will die. He won't live to see adulthood, uh, very much like his father had then been killed, or had been killed back in the first issue. And we get the cool thing that happens when basically, uh, in flashback, Vader shows up shortly after Revenge of the Sith. Oh, uh, the cleansing of Sereno. I love right. this scene. And you've got basically the, the major houses uh, being said, sorry, you guys were on the Separatist side, and Dooku was the leader of the Separatists. Never mind that he was a Sith and orchestrated all, etc., etc. So now that Vader, as Anakin, has killed Dooku, he's now been sent to essentially wipe out the heads of the noble houses of Sereno. Um, they're putting Aiden Dooku into position as the new leader because he and his family had gotten the heck out of there and distanced themselves from the Sith Lord Dooku uh, as a way of sort of protecting themselves politically and protecting themselves from the ravages of the war. And now that allows them to come in, but in order to basically keep the houses intact at all, all of the heirs to the houses are essentially forced to kill their own fathers, their own current heads of houses, um, for fear of everybody else dying. And we see this great moment where uh, Rodus Borgen, the, the main villain of the piece, is the first one essentially to draw his blade and kill his own father. It begins the slaughter um, where everyone winds up being killed. You get this great moment essentially 
where uh, I'm just to, to use the conversation here and whatnot. Just to say this very quickly, Vader says, you're all traitors. You supported the former Count Dooku as he led the Separatists. Now you must answer for it. To which uh, Borgin the Elder, Rodas Borgin's father, speaks out, saying, I must protest, Lord Vader. The Count's position made it impossible for us to defy him. His will was formidable and his persuasion skills were unmatched. We really had no other choice. To which Vader replies, there is always a choice. Aiden Dooku's mother went into exile with him when the Count resumed his title. Any of you could have done the same and did not. Nonetheless, a choice will be offered to you now. Each heir of a given house will assume the title of head of that house by killing the current title holder. Should any refuse, all will die. Uh, they argue and such to the point where Vader finally says, The rest of the galaxy suffered, so now will Sereno. The houses will be cleansed by blood. Borgin stabs his own father, beginning the bloodletting, and then in narration, as he's talking to Cross, he says, Then the slaughter began. Afterwards, we all had to bend on one knee in the blood of those we had just killed and swear fealty to the new head of House Dooku, Count Aiden Dooku. That special envoy Cross is the truth behind the cleansing of Sereno. And we get this great moment of depth for Borgin in that scene, and then for the entire rest of the story, all he is is a mustache-twirling villain who really doesn't pose much of a threat to anyone except through the people that he hires. He is a one-track-minded, jerk to his own family. Uh, that's, that's one thing I have as mm -hmm. an issue about this story, except for Davim Cross and Jahan Cross. For the most part, all the other characters in the story are absolutely one-dimensional. They mm -hmm. are uh, the mustache-twirling villain, uh, the loyal bodyguard, etc., etc., as opposed to getting any depth. Well, and, and right after that, you know, he goes, that special envoy cross is the truth behind the cleansing of Sereno. Actually, I'm indebted to the Empire for the lesson. I learned the limits of love and fealty. I love my father, but I wasn't going to die with him for no gain. There are limits to duty. Survival matters first. Power matters. That's the lesson that the Emperor taught me, and it stayed with me. And it really did. I mean, before that flashback, when we first see Cross show up, you know, to getting back to how big of a, a, a dick this guy is, you know, Johan Cross, Imperial Envoy, hmm? This Klaatuan is Horvus Jorik, my head of security. The stick is my wife, Krita, and the lump of fat is my alleged son and presumptive heir. My lord, you know full well that Pereiro is your son. Don't tell me what I know, madam. I know what you tell me and what I see, and the difference between the two. Take him to your room and coddle him some more. Make him less of a man than he is already. Go! And of course, you know, I mean, it, it just gets back to, I mean, you can see why he's such a, a jerk. But the one thing I find is so funny is like, you know, Cross himself, he's like, if I may... And he turns and looks at the security guard. He goes, take out your blaster and shoot me. And he's like, my lord. He looks over to the main guy and he's like, fine, shoot him. And he pulls the gun and Cross makes quick work of just beating the crap out of him. And I'm just like, whoa. And of course he goes, that is part of what I bring to the table, your grace. And that's, of course, where we get to the part where he tells him about the cleansing of Sereno, which, you know, I think, you know, that definitely adds to why he is the, the way he is. But. You know, Nathan, you're 100% right in the aspect of he is very shallow, very the mustache twirling guy. And as we learn from the cleansing of Sereno, he wasn't even the one put in charge. So, I mean, there's a level of douchebaggery here that goes with this guy for quite a while. From there, we go to the next day aboard the Windrunner, which, and I love this, it was kind of like a throwback to the uh, Jedi versus Sith 
uh, the comic there where we had the little airships and stuff, you know, kind of like an air uh, avatar, the last airbender feel to it, you know, the little helium type balloon carrying the boat up above. This is where they're going to do their whole voting on, you know, how we're going to elect the new count kind of thing or, or the regent, whatever they're figuring out. But it's an interesting moment because cross is able to meet up with young Brun and, you know, as, as Nathan was talking earlier about, you know, what, how it works with the regent, you know, he's kind of talking about, you know, if you fall off of here, you know, do you think it'd be like flying or floating? And of course, cross like a trifle morbid line of thought. Don't you think your grace? He's like, I'm not jumping. If that's your concern, not that it matters. It's unlikely I'll live to adulthood in any case. Why would you think that my father taught me to look at all things realistically and pragmatically part of my training to be the count. You see, he wanted me to be ready. The most probable reason for my father's assassination is that someone wanted to become regent that that way they will control the power and riches of the count of sereno until i come of age the one who is prepared to go that far is unlikely to stop merely being regent the easiest way to become the, the next count is to first become the regent you see and so you know this is where we we discover the whole aspect of you know why all this is going down and of course cross is in the middle of saying something he's like I think you're a smart and clear seeing young and, and stops and the kid's like, what's going on? And he goes, that cloud layer below us, it's following the wind runner against the wind. And this is, this is where we shift into a really fun scene for me because it turns out it's another airship full of what looks like pirates with what may be another Imperial agent named Vex on board. Of course, Vex and, and her uh, uh, Vex uh, has these little run-ins with cross. And he's like, she goes, Cross, what are you doing here? Doing my job, Vex. What are you doing here? Doing a job, which you're going to compliment, complicate, aren't you? You know, and as they go back and forth, there's a moment there where he he swings across, gets onto the pirate ship, and kind of like Princess Leia in uh in Reve Return of the Jedi, turns the cannon down towards the the uh the the main part of it, you know, like the whole Luke and Leia as they're about to swing off and, and, and save the day. And he blasts a hole inside the pirate ship. I, I like the little touch there of how it, it kind of goes back and he goes looking for Vex and he's looking for Bourne and they escape on a little tiny shuttlecraft and boom, we jump right from there into issue three. Yeah, I was not a big fan necessarily of the, the airship battle. I mean, I think it worked well enough. It, it's weird that we just kind of toss in, oh, hey, by the way, uh, here's this woman who's been hired to take him, but really just to kind of shake things up a little bit. And, oh, it turns out to be someone that Jahan knows, so she can do the whole uh, faking being comatose, so she can be arrested so that everything turns out okay. But don't worry, because he'll go in and save her. kind of feels like an unnecessary plot complication just to stretch it out for an extra issue. Honestly, what I thought was kind of neat was it reminded me of the airship battle between Helium and Zadanga in the John Carter of Mars, or John Carter, I guess they call it now, film. Uh, I actually have the original Edgar Rice Burroughs books on my nook, but I haven't taken the time to get a chance to actually read through all of them yet, so my, my point of reference is the film, which was done really good in 3D, by the way. Um, very Star Wars-y type feel to it, of course, with Star Wars being based on a lot of those old uh, serialized type uh, sci-fi stories and such. But that's what it reminded me of. It felt very much like uh, the airships that we see in there, only, you know, it's weird to see that type of thing without any Jedi on it. I mean, we're used to thinking of that in terms of the skiff battle and whatnot, the sail barge battle back in Return of the Jedi. And in this case, you know, it's left to Jahan to find a way off of that thing once it's damaged because, well, he's not a Jedi. So, again, it works out well. It just, again, it doesn't feel like the same type of tale as last time. You would figure he'd have some kind of gadget like, oh, she's taking off. 
I guess I gotta break out my jetpack or my air wing or whatever it was that they were testing out in the first arc where the one yeah. guy like completely fell and splatted. Um, it, he's very much left to just whatever he can find. Again, very much like a Daniel Craig James Bond as opposed to all the James Bonds before him. Yeah, it, I mean, it worked. When we go from issue two to issue three, it's literally right there. I mean, he's shoving a little escape pod into the chute. Come on, blast it into the chute. And then he's like, now, Vex, let's see if you disable this craft's engines. I mean, at least, you know, he's he's thinking about how he could be betrayed. One of the things I thought was interesting, though, was uh, the captain, Captain uh, Timon. She is piloting the other ship, and the way that her hands are engaged in the piloting mechanism, the steering yoke, if it were, uh, it, it's like her fingers are laced into it, and it's like a circle that she can turn. I, I just thought that was an interesting little thing there. Um, you know, and of course, you know, they're all assuming, you know, Cross is still on the other ship, and he blows it up, and they're watching all that action going down. But, you know, from there, we go back to Sereno itself. And, yeah, you know, that's that was the aspect of, you know, when Vex came in, it was like, okay, here's another – it was like the mystery got deeper, you know. And, I, again, I think if you're reading this as, a, as an entire – book you know all five issues at once i think you're going to get more out of this than if you were reading it as a single issue it, it, single issue wise it's just confusion with more confusion with more confusion with an occasional little toss to something here and there with some more confusion on top i do like the fact that as we we get into issue three as she winds up being locked up he's going to need to find a way to rescue her from the spike and it gives us our excuse to finally see Alessi Kwan, or Alessi, however you're supposed to say it, basically his version of Q in these stories, where we see him, uh, he's got, basically, uh, he's putting together a new droid. Instead of Inga, he's putting together Ilsa, I-L-S-A, in this case, who is going to be an actual human replica droid, synth skin and everything else, and he's not really for Cross so much as he's for Quinn, and basically they make a trade. You know, I'll keep your secret if you'll help me find a way into the spike, this prison, uh, by giving me the plans and whatnot so that I can free Vex. And because he needs to be able to free Vex in order to find out who hired her so he knows who it was that caused her to attack Braun in the first place. Which, of course, after our great uh, uh, jailbreak sequence here where it seems as though pretty much uh, he tears through a lot of people to get out of there basically by setting up a prison riot, more or less. Um, he, of course, finds out that it's actually uh, Rodas Borgin, the guy who wants to be regent, who did this, the mustache-twirling villain. Um, but by the time they get to the point where he can really do anything about that, that's when he's being told by uh, Armand Icehard, the, the guy who's in charge of intelligence at this point, that he basically has 32 hours because they're sending a fleet, basically, to take over and force Borgin into being the regent, you know, whether you know anyone else on the planet is for it or not, which gives, it's it's an odd scene, you can't really tell whether Iceheart is basically saying, look, you got 30, uh, there's only 32 hours left, you are to stand down, your mission is over, they're coming soon, so back off, or if he's saying, you have 32 hours, just wanted to let you know you have 32 hours, as a way to convince Cross that he has to act fast to do something in another way. Um, Cross certainly takes it as an opportunity and a warning that he has to act fast, but you gotta wonder if, if what Iceheart was actually wanting was for him to stand down or for him to do something. It's another of those things where it would have been different if it was a film because you could hear the intonation of the character's voice as he said it, mm -hmm. but you don't get that with it being in 
print. So issue three is where it kind of, I don't know, I was about to say it's where it kind of seems like it flounders and stretches a little bit, but really everything past one up until the very end kind of feels like it's that way. I don't know. It's, it's, and I'd say the same thing about the Daniel Craig Bond movies. I, I yeah. watch the beginnings, dig the beginnings, dig the end, and God, the, the middle sections are ridiculously drawn out and dull. Well, see, and, and I like the first of the Craig movies, but then the next two, I was just like, okay. But I, I definitely think that they're hitting that pacing. I think if you're a fan of those type of Bond films, you probably are going to enjoy this a lot more than me and Nathan have been. Uh, but like I say, as I'm reading this as a, as a more whole, I do enjoy it a little bit more than I did the first time through. When Cross goes to go into the spike, uh, he contacts back to uh, to Coruscant, goes back to the uh, Imperial headquarters of Imperial Intelligence, and he contacts Alyssi. Uh, uh, the, the guy that's repairing Inga, of all places. Making a new Inga? No, this is Ilsa. She's going to be a complete human replica droid. Synth hair, synth skin, the whole lot. I wanted to see if I could make one from scratch. I told you, Alessi, I like my droids to look like droids. Ilsa's not for you, Johan. You don't take care of the things I lend you. And so, you know, a, a quick little throwback to the very first arc, which... This is where I wonder if, you know, because, again, we're getting into Ostrander territory here. This man likes to lace things out for days. So I, I just have to wonder if we are looking at parts of a fifth or sixth arc already in motion here. Um, if that's what these parts that feel like there might be a little bit off or a throw here. You know, why is Vex the connection there? I mean, you know, yeah, it's serving this story, but is it going to have a big payoff later? Because that's something I love about Ostrander's work. He always pays off later. Uh, you know, when, when Cross is inside the spike, I like the aspect of, you know, we watch him wearing the little mask and all that stuff. Simple technologies, nothing too overt. Uh, but yeah, you know, when he sets off the bomb and causes the whole prison break, things do get a little crazy. Uh, it gets back to that aspect of, you know, Cross will do what he needs to to get the job done. Yeah, I will agree that this is one of the things that makes me still have hope for this series, that it's not going to wind up meandering and kind of becoming like dark times where it's something that I'm just kind of like, eh, about most of the time at best. I, I like the first arc. This one really didn't do anything for me. But, I mean, we've seen what Ostrander did with Republic. We've seen uh, what he did with Legacy which is my favorite Star Wars comic series ever, uh, he has done an amazing job in the past at being able to take threads that he lays down in one place and pulling them together later with sort of a bigger game plan in mind. And things like Vex and things like seeing uh, Ilsa being put together here, those make me think that maybe that's the same kind of thing that's going on here. But right now, this feels a lot like what we saw with some of the arcs of Knight Errant where maybe there is a bigger plan in place, but for right now, we don't see it, and it's not as good as what we've seen from the, the creator in the past, until we see all those threads t come together. Assuming this series lasts long enough, I mean, it took five months, five monthly issues to get this storyline done, who knows how long it is that Star Wars Under Dark Horse is going to survive, quite frankly. The yeah. more that we see changing with everything happening with Disney... Um, the more the rumors persist of the whole issue of perhaps the license being able to go over to Marvel as they sort of consolidate things, you know, I'm wondering, will it even matter in the grand scheme of things? If the last arc that finally pulls it all together, assuming that's where they're going, comes out as we're leading into Episode 7, is it really going to be something people care about anymore if, it's, if a lot of it's going to be dashed aside anyway? 
Um, that, that's my fear for any of these long-term plans with any of the current series, um, even with you know Star Wars Volume Two, because it's it's another of these things where it's like here's this big gamble that's being taken, but is it too little, too late? It's kind of like the person who goes out and gets psyched up to buy Powerball tickets right after the giant jackpot was already won, and it's starting <laughs> back at you know the the base that everything has to build back from again. I, I don't know. I do like the fact, though, that in issue four, we get a, a, a weird twist on settings. When they find out where Braun is being held, it turns out that he is being held in an underwater facility. But not just any underwater facility. He finds out that he's being held in, it's called, it's called Oto Duku. It is a Gungan style underwater retreat to which they have to go in a bongo and from which they escape in sub-fighters uh, of a similar make to what we saw in the Clone Wars uh, Gindy Tartakovsky series. It's a little unusual. It turns the final chase sequence of issue number four into something that happens underwater, which is kind of neat, not something we see a whole lot in Star Wars. But again, just another one of these very straightforward, you know, we're going to go in, we're going to rescue him. We went in, we rescued him. Okay, next issue. At the end of issue three, we find out that the guy that hired Cross to kill Elder Dooku hired someone else to kill younger Dooku. It's like, why not just hire him to kill them both? The, like, that's, I think that's the part for me that, that, that makes it feel so off. It's like, this could have all been resolved if you just hired Vex to do the job or had Cross off everybody on the ship or something. Well, uh, he but, didn't, yeah. but he, did, he didn't hire him to kill Braun. He hired him to go in there and make himself out to be a hero, right? He says, had you not interfered, Cross, my forces would have rescued the boy and killed his kidnappers, and I would have been named... And I would have been a hero and named Regent. He wasn't trying to kill Braun. He was trying to rig the election by saving Braun from people he himself hired. Oh. See, I, I had assumed that he had sent Cross down there to kill his dad, and that was what had set everything into motion. I mean, I think that it was a matter of the Empire wanting, perhaps on Borges's part, or Borgen's part, because they, they wanted Borgen to be the new regent, um, the Empire, or someone on behalf of him, hired Cross to kill Aiden Dooku. But at this point, the only way that they're going to be able to get control is for Borgen to be named Regent. It's kind of like, um, oh gosh, I mean, take, again, we'll use the Game of Thrones example. It's like Cersei Lannister um, leading, or, or Tywin or whoever might be in place to lead, uh, while we've got the younger king uh, in place. Or perhaps something along the lines of, you know, if you look back at, um, at French history, you know, with the different Louis and such, and how we sometimes had uh, kings come in who were too young to officially reign, so they had regents in place for them. I mean, he kind of wants to be the one calling the shots, but if the kid's dead, then he doesn't get to be the one calling the shots. He has to be the one who's sort of the the the, the overseer on behalf of young Braun to make this happen. Well, and then he goes and, and decides to bring in uh, Timon 
and she of course gets mad. They have a nice little brawl fight. I mean, that, I think I like that aspect about it. I mean, she was a chick that was able to give as good as it gets, and we had that whole bigotry on on Cross's part at the beginning. You know, a woman's security officer must be pretty good. And then she goes around in the bar and just starts whooping his arse. I loved it. And. And let's add to this that one thing this story does definitely have going for it that most Star Wars stories don't. It's not just the fact that you have a strong female character who may not be a, a the lead character, but one of the lead characters in this. She is the one who winds up sacrificing herself in the end to make sure that Braun is safe. She's not just a female character. She is a black female character. And we've talked before about how there's all this species diversity in Star Wars, but when it comes to racial diversity amongst the human characters, it's almost non-existent. In this case, we actually have another, uh, what was it, what is it, uh, Sikoran, I guess, what was it that they call Lando Calrissian? Uh, we have a, uh, as in, in the novels, they would always say, a dark skin, a skin the color of chocolate, skin the, okay, it's a black character, as apparently we find out uh, in one of the stories recently where they actually use the word black to refer to him, or maybe that was back in some of the stuff from the Star Wars library. I don't remember. It all blurs together. Um, but we actually have a female major character, a heroic character, a sacrificial character who is also black. They've hit two of the groups who are often lacking representation among Star Wars heroes, being given somewhat their due in this story. Granted, she gets blown the heck up, so she doesn't get to come back later, but it does serve to balance out some of that heavy imbalance out there that we've talked about in previous episodes. Well, and on top of it all, she was bald. I mean, there was she was the bald black beauty. Uh, going from there, I believe this technically, in the timeline side of things, and Nathan, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, we get the first introduction of Boba Fett in the timeline of things. Uh, Vex contacts him. He's in Slave One, and she has a job for him. This is how he gets involved, which we will then, you know, in the throwback aspect that started in Episode One, or Issue One, we will see how that ties back in. But yeah, there was a definite long, drawn-out feeling from Issue Two into Issue Four. I mean, you know, we end up getting back to uh, Dave and Cross and, and, you know, Yawns going up and talking with his dad about, you know, hey, you packing, you getting out of here, what's going on? They have a little moment there and they're talking about Duke Borgen and, and the Duke's, you know, Duke Bockery. I think the whole bringing in of Fett is one of these aspects to the story that leaves me going, really? Really that's the way they had to do it? It makes sense, but Cross is relying on the idea that if Fett feels like he's been screwed over, Fett will take vengeance by killing the person who did it. Um, it, like, it's like the only point of hiring in Fett to supposedly come after Braun, or at least in his mind, to come after Braun, um, is so that then when Braun is supposedly killed uh, to cover his being spirited away to Alderaan, uh, Boba Fett will feel as though he has been double-crossed by his employer so that he would then kill that employer, and Cross has made sure that the trail leads back not to himself, the real person who hired him, but to Borgin, so that Borgin winds up being killed by Fett. In fact, by the end of it, they've even gone ahead and set it up so that his son, Pero, can wind up becoming the next uh, head of House Borgin because essentially they've already written uh, Rhodus Borgin off as dead. So instead of hiring somebody to just kill him, instead of hiring somebody to hire somebody to kill him and kind of doing the whole uh, uh, Dooku hiring 
Jango Fett to hire Zam to go after Padme in Episode 2 kind of thing, it's not... It doesn't feel like a guarantee. He's betting on the fact that he can manipulate Fett into killing Borgin to tie up these loose ends. That's why he calls for Fett in the first place. I don't know. It feels very forced. It relies very much on chance, or maybe just we're supposed to believe that Jahan Cross is such an expert at the psychology of people like Boba Fett that this isn't a gamble. He knows he'll be able to manipulate Fett mm. into killing him for him. I don't know. It felt very... Clumsy's not the right word for it. It felt very coincidental. It felt to me yeah. a lot like what we see in stories, especially back in the Marvel days or in the uh, the Star Comics stuff, like the Ewok stuff, where you have two ice creatures charging at a, at a, an Ewok who then gets out of the way and the ice creatures smash together and get destroyed. Or an X-Wing being chased by one TIE fighter flies toward another TIE fighter and dives out of the way just so that both TIE fighters can shoot and destroy each other. Extremely coincidental. It... It, it, there are so many ways it could have gone wrong, and yet it falls into place. But well, it, 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 it's, it feels to me, in a story that is so grounded in no Jedi, no Force, this is a spy-type story, that aspect of it does not feel like it is as grounded in realism as many other aspects of the story try to be. See, I, I think maybe it's an outer-world realism we're going for. It, it seems like there's a delicate balance here with Cross. Is he good? Is he bad? And here at the end, you know, when they save young Bron, Bron goes, yes. Or, or uh, uh, Kander goes, you remember Yon Cross, right? Yes, he's a good man. And, and Cross goes, no, your highness, I'm not. However, sometimes what you need is a bad man who's on your side. And I, and I think that that's the cross here where we go back and forth, you know, I mean, it's like, is he good? Is he bad? Is he going to realize the empire's bad? No, he's out killing people. I mean, you know, that's the side of it. it's like you don't know whether or not he is a a a good guy fighting on the wrong side or if he is a bad guy with a heart of gold. You don't really know exactly what you're getting from him. That's the aspect of him being a spy that is really working. He is, in a sense, a double cross in and of himself to you, the reader. You don't know what you're going to get. Uh, really quick, though, I want to go back to the Gungan uh, little world that they had there on Sereno for Dooku, uh, the, the Odo or whatever it's called. I think that that is interesting in the aspect of in-universe uh, marketing. You know, I never thought about the Gungans marketing their worlds, their little uh, habitats, and selling them off-world to other places. I mean, that just seems ingenious, really. I mean, I, hey, everybody's got a lake. Gungans, get to selling that stuff, man. Oh, but can you imagine the advertisements, the the, the hollow ads? Uh, Use a get a money back, so guarantee, sir. <laughs> no sinking, no blabbling. <laughs> use yeah, a bongo it, to get there, or use it in big doo doo this time. <laughs> I mean, that could even be the, like the, the number, you know, like call one eight hundred D O O D O O two. I can see it. I mean, just I never thought about that before. Uh, you know, and and earlier we had we'd watched Cross kind of just slap the ever living poodoo out of uh the uh, Klaatuan bodyguard of the Duke. And now we're watching him kind of interacting as his role. And again, it gets back to Cross is playing up these people. So yeah, I, I think you're right. There is an aspect of Cross is pretty good at reading people. Uh, there's definitely that aspect. I mean, he totally plays this guy and gets him to act like an idiot and, and totally sets things up the way he wants it to go. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think I just my that is sort of my thing with this. It just sort of feels like and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there's probably people out there who absolutely love this story and hated the first one. But I feel as though this one feels much more like a series of necessary plot points. We are going to do this scene and this scene and this scene. Now, how can we connect these all together into one story that could have been much more straightforward than it was? Um, rather than being something that really felt like it had that great creative spark that the first arc did. I mean, granted, yeah, I... It's, it's kind of weird. This one has sort of a flat villain who had some interesting psychology behind him that you never really get to see much in the present day when he's just the mustache-twirling villain. But at least he wasn't a weird cybernetic insect version of a character from a previous series, um, which was, of course, the enemy back in Iron Eclipse. Um, but it really feels like it lost a lot of that James Bond secret agent flair. Um, to this. I'd like to see them go back to that type of storytelling um, so that we get the same sort of thrill out of, say, the third arc, assuming there's going to be a third arc, um, that we did out of the first one. Because to me, this one, you know, it, again, it, it wasn't Dark Times level, meh, but it was not something that I was really excited about. When the story ended, I was like, oh, okay, it's over. I was never excited, like, ooh, what's going to happen in the next issue or anything like that? For this series, it's just like I said, it, it yeah, it's more curious. Flat. Like, where see where this next one goes, kind of thing. Where you're just like, okay, all right, now what? Uh, you know, I did like though how when we finally catch up to the events of the beginning, you know, that flashback, uh, how it plays up and catches up, and they literally we witness again that scene playing forth. You know, unfortunately, Fett getting in your way is my mission, uh, and. Again, it gets back to the aspect of the Bond, the the Bond of Bond characters here. Not just, you know, Daniel Craig, not all the other ones, but the, the heart of Bond. Bond's always kissing somebody. And they, they find a way to toss it in. I mean, Cross is kissing on, on our little black bald beauty here. I mean, he's kissing on Vex. I mean, it's like, who won't he kiss? I mean, you know, I'm just wondering, like, is this guy like the prime candidate for VD in the Star Wars EU? It turns out that the Emperor's Plague from the Young Jedi Knights book was cultivated from him <laughs> oh, at the end man. of his career. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Gosh, that's, that's a bad one. But getting into, probably for me, one of the more interesting things here is as Fett and Cross get into their fight, they start doing a little more uh, hand handheld fighting, bopping and stuff. And of course, Fett takes off his helmet. And I'm just like, whoa, wait, whoa, Fett's taking off the helmet. This is interesting. And when the helmet comes off, it's a Fett that I wasn't quite expecting to see. I, I I think we've seen Fett drawn like this before in like an Infinities or a Tales comic. But, I mean, he's got a very big, big scar running across from his left cheek, right about the cheekbone. It goes up across his nose, below his right eye, curves around the right eye, comes up through the right eyebrow and up into the middle part of his forehead. Uh, and it definitely gives him a very rough and rugged look, but it kind of took me back. I wasn't expecting him to look that scarred up. And then, of course, later, you know, we, we watch uh, as the shuttle explodes and stuff. And and of course, you know, Cross goes, but the stars fed. What have you done? And Fed's like, wasn't me. And the look on his face, like there's a couple scenes there in that explosion panel where his eyes are just so big. I'm like. Just it did not at all feel like Fett to me. Like I was expecting cold, calculating Fett, and this guy looks uh, a little thuggish. 
Yeah, definitely in the last scene or the last panel on that two-page spread where the, the shuttle explodes, he's got those crazy eyes going on. You expect him to get locked up and carve a swastika into his forehead or something someday. He's got that Manson thing going on. <laughs> yes, oh my gosh, exactly, exactly. Oh, yeah, the last one, when Cross goes, he goes, and someone set you up, Fett, someone who benefits from the boy's death, who hired you, Fett. That that scene of him, totally, I could see the little Manson swastika. Oh, my gosh, that's perfect. And, of course, you know, it gets into why Cross left the, the head of security of, you know, the Dukes alive, because then he's then reporting that Cross is dead and kind of giving the Duke a false sense of security, if you will, not even knowing what's really coming his way. And I got to say, the last sequence, it it really kind of reminded me of the beginning of Casino Royale. Um, I think think that's the the Bond movie I'm thinking of. Uh, Him just sort of sitting there like, you're going to die. I'm just going to tell you calmly what's going on, but you're going to wind up dead. Um, the thing about it is, in that scene where he's sitting there confronting Borgen, he's telling Borgen all about the plan, all about what's going on, what has happened, the fact that his, uh, his I guess it was his uh, brother-in-law, who is now the new count, and the new head of House Borgen is his son, who at one point he thought was not even his son. Um, and then he says, uh, you know, you're dead. I was the one who hired Boba Fett through a third party, but he thinks it was you. He thinks you set him up. Something else I'm afraid I suggested. Fett is no fool. Uh, If he figures out I was the one who set him up, I will be a dead man. If, on the other hand, he believes me, and then we see uh, Borgen get shot. And while they're having this conversation, Boba is outside with a sniper rifle zooming in on Borgen to take the shot. Well, the best part about that, though, is at first, the first scene where you see that crosshair, the crosshairs are on cross. And you're like, ooh, is he? Uh, And I love the way that cross plays that at. Or if, on the other hand. (laughs) But but the thing about it is, you better be hoping, cross, that Boba Fett, along with all his myriad of gear, doesn't have something (laughs) to let him listen to your conversation. Because if this whole thing comes down to the idea that you are trying to manipulate him into killing Borgen, then you just gave everything away. Hopefully, because you know the the direction that uh, that Cross is turned in, that maybe those are the only windows in the room. Because you look at this other shot back when they uh, where it's the the panel on the pre- the page before the one with the crosshair where he says your plan up at the top. You can see that there are windows behind Cross. There are also windows to the side of Cross. If Boba had been over there and had the slightest ability to, say, read lips, Cross just <laughs> blew his entire plan. Um, it, he became sort of the mustache-twirling villain at the end, laying out, and this is why I did everything. Now I'm assuming you're going to die, so you can't reveal it. Only in this case, because he's the hero, Borgen does die, so he can't reveal it, unlike if Borgen had been the hero in just about any film. What what kind of was the twist that threw me, though, at the end? A lot of it, the twists and turns didn't feel like twists and turns. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it, for some reason, it just never really got the thrill with each twist and turn. But the twist at the end kind of made me go, what? The twist that really gets me, though, is at the end where Braun is taken to Alderaan to live and is greeted, uh, he's taken by Davim, uh, but uh, Jahan's father, but is greeted by Leia and Bale. And I'm assuming that what's going to happen is he's just going to be given like an adoptive family of some kind, 
where Bale and them can look out for him until he eventually comes of age and then he can decide whether or not to go and, and reclaim his birthright or whatever. But it kind of makes it seem as though he's going to be raised as like a little brother to Leia. And if that winds up being the case, if he's not just being taken to that family so they can find a placement for him, but he's actually being taken to stay with the Organa family, that creates the huge Ahsoka style then where the hell has he been in every other story that talks about Leia's early days? And why oh. is he never mentioned by Leia at any given point? It's the, hey, look, Anakin's got a Padawan you never heard of before that he never talks about in the future. But don't worry, it'll be okay. See, I, I took that differently. Uh, when I saw it going down, you know, they brought him to Alderaan because he's a family friend of you know, Antilles here. And so it makes kind of sense in that regard. Antilles? I know. I totally, I, I went wrong Bale. <laughs> He's a total friend of Bale here. And the thing that I, I find interesting, and this is where I think I, I took it differently. Bale goes, so, so Johan's plan worked. And his father, Cross's father goes, hmm, yes, Sereno now believes Baron is dead and, and a neutral count has been named. Braun will have a chance to grow to adulthood here. Then he can return to Sereno and reclaim his birthright, if he so chooses. I'll raise him in the meantime. So what that tells me is not only is Braun staying on Alderaan, but so is Cross's dad. That Cross has close connections with Alderaan, which we saw in the aspect of the beginning of the first one where where Cross himself, you know, Jan is, is, is messing with Leia and Winter. So it gave me that impression that the Cross family and the Organa family are a lot closer than what I ever anticipated before. What would be interesting then is if they were, and I can't imagine them doing this, but we've got a storyline now that takes place about two months after A New Hope in Star Wars Volume 2 in the Shadow of Yavin and whatnot. Wouldn't it be interesting if Brian Wood were to then work in Cross as possibly a double agent working for the Rebels, and then we've got essentially this two-year gap in which to figure out how does he get to that point. Um, it'd be very interesting to see them do that, the whole Straczynski thing where he says, you know, it's not about what the end is going to be, it's the journey in between. So knowing the end, the question becomes about the journey. Well, that's what I'm saying with episode seven here. You know, people are always like, oh, it's going to knock anything else that came before it out. It's like, well, not necessarily. We just got to find the how we get there or create a whole new universe. So I don't know. I guess my my overall feelings on this this story arc are interesting plot elements, interesting character developments for certain characters. I like the groundwork they're laying to broaden Jahan Cross's story. Did I think this was a particularly good arc in and of itself? No. It fell flat. It felt somewhat convoluted. It didn't have that same thrilling uh, pre-Daniel Craig, James Bond feel that we got out of the first arc. But it definitely did still have the Bond feel, just more of the Daniel Craig era. And I'm interested to see where they go from here. Is it going to go back to the heights of Iron Eclipse? Or is it going to stay in kind of the eh of hard targets? Yeah, I mean, if I had to put a number on it between 1 and 10, I'd say I'd probably give it a 4. Mainly because, while I like the Bond films, I'm not really a fan of that genre. And this definitely nails it. It definitely has the feel of Bond, uh, the feel of the of the uh, Born Identity, that kind of thing. But yeah, you know, this one wasn't one that necessarily had me all on the edge of my seat. It was one that was more mystery maybe more of a uh 
a Dean Koontz kind of novel or something like that, you know. I don't know. It wasn't really my cup of tea, but again, it gets back to I'm not a huge Bond fan. I like aspects of Bond. So I liked aspects of it. They were good. I liked the twists and turns. Uh, I do 100% think, though, you will get the most out of this if you wait to read it all at once. Don't read it issue by issue. You do that, you're not going to like it. I just don't think you're going to like it at all. Um, you may like aspects about it, but I really think you're going to get the most bang for your buck if you get all five of these. Sit down and read them all at once. All right, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging out with us as we ponder on and sharing our fandom. Before we go, though, Nathan has a quick announcement. That's right, we've got a new contest that's going to be going on here. It'll start once this episode is released. We'll post it uh, on the Facebook page and whatnot so that you are reminded about it going on. This episode is going to be released on Friday, April 12th, or at least that's the target date for it. We will keep this contest going until Friday, April 26th. So it's going to be a two-week gap here. It'll end at uh, midnight Eastern on the night of the 26th or the morning of the 27th and what you can win this time around uh it's essentially two as far as i can tell two complete waves of the star wars transformers the class one or level one transformers that's the small ones that are about the size of like a, a hot wheels or a matchbox car type of uh, of toys are not the the bigger sized they're ones that stand you know just a few inches tall about the size of a regular action figure and such the first wave from what i can tell it's the one that has the images from the Clone Wars film and first couple seasons of the show. And you've got an Anakin Skywalker that transforms into a yellow Revenge of the Sith era Jedi Starfighter. You got General Grievous, who turns into his uh, soulless one, his Starfighter from Revenge of the Sith. And then you have Obi-Wan Kenobi, who turns into a red... It's the it's the Delta Seven. It's the Attack of the Clones era Jedi Starfighter, but it's the model seen in the Clone Wars cartoon, where it's got the droid actually in front, so it's an actual droid as opposed to just the head and such. And then Wave Two had a, the pictures on the back are all from Revenge of the Sith, as opposed to being from the cartoon. You've got an Obi Wan Kenobi that transforms into the Revenge of the Sith red. Jedi Starfighter, Jedi Interceptor, so it makes a good complement to the yellow Anakin one from the first wave. Then you've got a Delta Seven Clone Wars cartoon series version that turns into Anakin, so you get a yellow one with Anakin there to complement the red one for Obi-Wan from the first wave. And then the unique one, or the entirely unique one from that wave, is uh, Anakin, who turns into a... Oddly enough, it's a picture of him from Revenge of the Sith, but he turns into a Clone Wars cartoon series version of a Y-Wing, a yellow Y-Wing here. Now, all of these have been taken off their cards. They come, they originally come with the card and the little bubble that's got the figure in it. Um, they are loose. They are complete. They are in excellent condition. The original cards are included, along with the original instructions and all the accessories. So, which means with the exception of General Grievous and the Y-Wing Anakin, they all come with two lightsabers each, one for each hand. And in the case of the Y-Wing Anakin, it comes with one lightsaber. The General Grievous lightsabers are actually built into his arms. So, two complete three-toy waves of the Star Wars Level 1 Transformers. In order to enter this contest, number one, you need to be living in the United States. This one is going to be limited in a range here just because of shipping costs and whatnot. 
Uh, send an email to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanwars.com, our email. Put Transformers in the subject line, and in the body of the email, tell me your shipping address, just in case you were to win this particular contest. We do have other ones coming up. We're going to have one for Most Precious Weapon, probably. It's one of those Toys R Us exclusive 2002 comics, although the copy that I've got to give away, it feels a little wrinkly. I'm not sure if we're going to do that one. I need to just see if the quality level is there um, for that, or we'll have to put a lot of caveats on it. We also have a couple of little uh, Episode 1 books that are about the size, a little bit bigger than the size of a silver dollar, uh, that are the who's who and what's what of Episode 1 books from, I believe it's DK, Dorling Kindersley. But for now, it's the Transformers. you got two weeks to enter this contest if you want to enter it, so uh, good luck to you, but make sure you follow the instructions I just gave. Uh, if you don't include your shipping address in the body or have the subject line Transformers, it will not be accepted as an entry. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Uh, you can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or if you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. With more than 100,000 titles, you can explore the Star Wars expanding universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book that you flat out hate. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the screen, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And apparently Count Nathan. <laughs> Saying, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. We'll never get to actually see where these stories are going if... Nah, go ahead. If we're going to see uh, Count Dooku's name ever thrown out there. Or if we find out that he was adopted into the Dooku family and isn't a Dooku at all. Or if we'll find out that there are blood tests that <laughs> screen for STDs for Imperial agents. <laughs> I gotta be honest with you though, the whole STD thing's kind of funny because we say that about him, but apparently his mom was kind of like that too. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of makes you wonder about Mara, doesn't it? Oh, I know there'll be people angry hearing that. I can convince you, or he goes, I can conceive you. I can conceive of you doing it without being able to con. I can conceive of you being able to do it. Man, oh, Jesus. <laughs> We've seen what Ostrander do with Republic. We saw what Ostrander... Uh. Holy sh**. Excuse me. <laughs> Damn. Uh, yeah, you can pretty much do whatever you want when you were the Empire. You want to send a drone to kill an American citizen? Wait, no, sorry. Um, that Different thing, different thing.